Hey, everybody. Johnny Fry and James Tiley were back over here with Digital Bytes doing the podcast for the weekly newsletter. And this week we had um, Sarah Green featured. She wrote an article. She's a professor. Uh, is it for the, and now I'm American, so I don't know this. Is it for the Law Commission for Commercial and Common Law? It's probably a Johnny question, right? <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, good to be back on the air. And yeah, well, welcome, Professor, um, or, or Sarah Green, as I know you like to be called. Um, Sarah, you've written, a, well, I think it's a really very, very important article um, from the Law Commission about the report on digital assets. But before we get stuck into that, um, I realise we have a lot of listeners in different countries around the world. Can you explain what the Law Commission actually does um, and, and how, how on earth did you get involved in all of this? It's, it's very highbrow. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so the Law Commission, uh, often referred to as the UK Law Commission, but strictly the Law Commission for England and Wales, because Scotland and Northern Ireland have their own um, different uh, jurisdictions, essentially. So what we do is we are what's called an arm's length body. Um, and that's arm's length from government. So we receive government funding. That is how we exist in financial terms. But what's really, really important is that we conduct our research independently. So we are not a government department um, and we do not follow a sort of government mandate in political terms. And in fact, um, the government usually asks us to look at uh, law reform when it wants a non-political sort of independent in intellectual terms um, assessment of, of an area of law reform. And that's what we exist to do. We, we look for ways of making the law of England and Wales modern, fair and accessible. Um, and we do that on a consultative basis. So we have lots of um, brilliant lawyers who work in-house, who conduct the necessary research. Um, and we also consult across the board. So with this project that I've written this short piece about digital assets, um, you know, we talk to end users, we talk to technologists, platform developers, we talk to judges, we talk to legal advisors. I mean, really anybody, we are all ears. Um, we come up with provisional proposals, we consult on them, we analyse those responses, and then we come up with the um, final recommendations to government. And then strictly it's up to government whether or not they want to take them forward. Um, and I mean, I got into this. I was a, a, a law professor for a long time, <laughs> a couple of decades. Um, and I, so I wrote a lot about private law. But before that, I was a software developer for Accenture. Oh, my um, so, yeah. So I was a coder. You're a techie like James. <laughs> yeah. You're a geek, Professor I, James. I, I know that. I, I am definitely, definitely a geek. Oh, uh, so, no. <laughs> so, that, so that's how I got into it, because there, there weren't that many um, sort of private lawyers at the time who were also really interested in, in the technology. There's a, um, yeah, there's a sort of dearth of people with those two interests. So there you go. Uh, and, and you're a lady, which is even better, because there's a dearth <laughs> of ladies in the tech scene, let alone the legal. God, so you don't need to wear a wig. You've got your own wig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. There aren't there are many women, actually. And in fact, when I've spoken on, on, on technology podcasts before, I think it's true to say maybe three of those said that I was the first woman that they'd had in the whole series. So, yeah. Oh, would that, would that mean... a few... Wait a minute. We've had a few yeah. more ladies than that, but it's, it's great to have you. Sorry, James, I cut in front of you there, mate. I'm proud of myself. I'm getting good with the, uh, the British stuff. So is there a potential... For you to be a Queen's counsellor? 
Uh, well, oh, no, it's it still can, a king. It must still be a king. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's for that's for legal practitioners. So, um, and there's a there is a sort of slight divide here. Um, it, if you you, if you if you practice, you have to have a separate qualification, which some academics do. They have both. They're sort of dual practice. Um, so yes, I suppose there's potential, but it's, it's it's not very likely in my case, seeing as I'm working on the other side of the the other side of that divide, as it were. Okay, Sarah. Before we get stuck into your article, um, am, am I correct that if someone if, if you've come up with a recommendation, then judges here in the UK are happier to rely on your thoughts and recommendations as when they're making decisions um, and therefore that gets enshrined then in case law is is is, is that correct or have I got completely wrong end of the stick no no that's 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 pretty much it I mean what the, the law commission can do so there's you know there's two sources of law as you've already really alluded to there's statutes which everybody's heard of you know the the Consumer Protection Act, for instance, you know, the Consumer Rights Act, we, we know what those are. Um, but there's a there's a huge amount of law in um, a common law system like ours and like that in the US um, that is based on, on judge made law. So it's it's decisions that that are that are made in, in courts, as you say. And quite often what the Law Commission is asked to do is to reform statute law, and that's certainly something that we do do. Um, but we're not restricted to that. And in this area, what we've done, um, which my short article um touches on is is we've recommended a bit of both so a little bit of what I would call laparoscopic legal surgery in the sense that there's <laughs> tiny sort of little statutory tweaks that, that that we think that need to be made but actually broadly what we want is is this to develop through judge-made law through common law because you know this technology I mean you know this very well it's constantly evolving which means that the law needs to be nimble and it needs to be responsive and statute law gives you certainty you know it's there it's in black and white on the page um, and subject to interpretation issues it is what it is whereas common law is is a lot more agile and I and I think can um, respond to the demands of technology as it evolves but what you know, judges don't have the time and counsel doesn't have the time to delve into the detail of these technologies and their implications for law. So that's what we've tried to do in this report and then provide that as an analysis, which, you know, judges and counsel can then pick and choose from to, to support their arguments or or otherwise, you know, whether people agree with this or not. It's certainly a springboard for that development, I think. OK, and, and Sarah, with, with your greatest respect, it's important to you and I because we both live in the UK but why should James's listeners really care? You know, English law, you know, so what? You know, it, how, how common is the use of English law in, in other jurisdictions? Well, it's very common um, in commercial transactions. I think it's something like um, 80% of international commercial transactions would choose English law to, to govern. Wow. Uh, actually, probably less so from, from the sort of United States side of, of things, because um, you know, they have a, a very good um, version of their own. Um, and it's uh, that's very clear. But of course, these these transactions, particularly with digital assets, are by their are by definition, you know, they are cross jurisdictional. These are global transactions. And so there are two things. One is that if two parties are trying to decide on a on a law to agree on, um, English law is still very commonly used just I think because it's so old because it gives the certainty people know where they stand in commercial terms with it 
Um, so that's that's one thing to say. But the other thing to say is even if parties have not chosen English law and the transaction is not um, governed by English law principles, that really isn't the end of the story because these um, transactions are, as I've said, so cross-jurisdictional. There is a huge amount of value, and we we have done this. We've worked, for instance, alongside um, the authors of the Uniform Commercial Code in the US. Um, we've also worked with Unidwar, which is a more European-based um, body that looks at how to reform the law. We've shared ideas. We've developed our own principles um, in step with one another because, you know, to do otherwise would be counterproductive, and we're all trying to get to the same place. So although this is... Um, a, a report that has been written um, within the within the sort of geographical boundaries of England and Wales. It certainly hasn't been done in a silo. And I think, you know, we've learned a lot from other jurisdictions and, we, and we're very hopeful that this report will be used um, as a basis for other jurisdictions to, again, sort of pick and choose bits which suit their own jurisdictional requirements. So I think it's in in that sense hopefully a lot broader than england and wales so so it has potentially quite Im, Im, implications for other uh, other jurisdictions just just in the uk or just in england and wales i should say yeah and i think we had a consultation paper on the same um topic which you know is where our final report has has come from and that was published in july of 2022 and in the celsius bankruptcy case in the us um judge glenn actually referred to that publication because the Law Commission here is is quite a, a I think it's a sort of fairly unusual institution. You know, we have lawyers who are, um, you know, they can indulge their their whole working day thinking about digital assets. You know, some of us have been thinking about this solidly for two and a half years, and there aren't many people that have the um, the advantage of of being able to do that. So, I think the the analysis that we've been able to provide is therefore useful elsewhere and as I said it was referred to in the in the Celsius um, bankruptcy case the other side of the pond and and I've got to bring attention to it because it's no relation to mine but you talked about a a, a case back in 1885 Colonial Bank um, versus (laughs) Winnie with Lord Justice Justice Fry yeah yeah yeah. and you were talking about personal or or property could could you give a, a, a a simplistic summary of, of why you've raised this point because it's uh, to me it seems probably that, that a very or it seems very 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 seems very important as to what your sort of thoughts are on this subject yeah absolutely that's sort of key to the whole report really which is I mean one of the questions we were presented with when we were asked to look at this was um whether or not these digital assets could could be property in legal terms and I think it's a surprise it's probably a surprise to lots of people who've invested in various digital assets that that's an open question but it is actually um I mean less so as we as we go along but certainly five years ago when this first started uh, it's not clear what the answer to that question was and one of the reasons for that was the famous quote that you refer to there which is if we have personal property these things are either shows in possession uh, which I'll explain in a minute shows in action um, and if they don't fit into those two categories it's there is no tertium quid is the actual um, quote so there is no third way it's either a thing in possession so like a tangible thing that you can hold and um, pass on like a watch or a laptop or a bag of gold or it's a thing in action, which is a total intangible, like a debt, right? So you can't hold a debt in your hand, you can't see it, so on and so forth. And that for centuries was the dichotomy that we had. And then you have digital assets that come along, 
Um, it's not just digital assets. You can see it with sort of voluntary carbon credits, for instance. But yeah. all of a sudden we have these assets which actually don't fit very easily into either of those categories. And so one of the things that we've suggested in the report or recommended, I should say, is that actually the law now starts to recognise a tertium quid or a third way, which is those assets which should be the objects of property. You know, we do want them to be protected against interference. We do want parties to be able to transact in relation to them, but they they need a category of their own. And that's one of the bases of the report. And, and if they've got a category of their own, presumably then it comes with rights and obligations accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's really, really important because I think, you know, parties expect when they pay money for, say, an NFT, um, you know, as I said a few moments ago, I think they'd be amazed to learn that it wasn't absolutely obvious to the law that that's an object of property rights. So if you buy an NFT and I somehow, um, you know, divest you of it, you should have a remedy in law. And that's what this third category um, is, is going to give to those parties. OK, whereas at the moment, people would say it's not defined in law. There isn't a third way. So therefore, they could try it on and keep possession of, as you say, an NFT or or potentially any other digital asset, because now we're seeing more and more um, real world assets being made available in a digital format. As you said, you know, a, a watch, a bag of gold, it could be something as boring as an equity or a bond or or even, you know, James's house. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of things are now tokenized. And, and the question is um, where you have that token, say, on a distributed ledger, which is tethered. I mean, it would have to be a legal tether, obviously, to something in the real world. How does the law then treat that token? So if that token is notionally um, attached to, say, I mean, they did, it's already happens, for instance, with diamonds. So if I trade tokens or transfer a token to you that represents a diamond in the real world, you know, it really does matter what the character, uh, what the characterization of that token in law is. So does it by by giving you the token or by selling you the token more likely, um, does the control of that token therefore give you the proprietary right in the diamond? And of course, for parties involved, that's a fantastically important um, question to answer. OK, so this this uh, what springs to my mind is that and, and diamond is a, is a really good example or perhaps as I said earlier on, real estate, because more people tend to own a little bit of real estate. Um, we're not talking about the law suggesting that diamonds or houses need to be regulated from a financial service point of view, but simply giving legal certainty definition that, you know, you, there are obligations, responsibilities, on, on, on both sides, if, if, if you've got a digital asset version of the diamond or the house. Yeah, it's it's about really protecting parties' expectations. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, presumptions that are made at the moment. As I said, if people will exchange tokens, which they are then told, you know, if you have this token, it will give you um, just simply by holding this token, it will give you the rights in the in the thing, uh, which is obviously what you're really interested in. Uh, and and as the law stands at the moment, it really isn't clear that that's in fact what happens. So you could pay. Um, as a party quite a considerable amount of money for this token and then later find out that actually you've got nothing more than um, you know an alphanumeric string on a on a some sort of blockchain and the law doesn't recognize that that actually gives you rights to anything beyond that so um, it's it's I think obvious from that situation why it's so important that the law gets clarity on this. Okay what's what's the what okay and am I correct then there's one of two what I call next steps, either 
um, the government actually, you know, pass some statute, they get together, they have a vote and it's passed through Parliament. Um, or someone brings a case to court and hopefully the judge will be sufficiently up to speed and say, oh, hang on, the Law Commission has just given us some, um, some suggestions and thoughts on this matter. And, and if they follow what your recommendations are, then that would be uh, as good as, um, if you like, our MPs getting together and passing some sort of law in, in Parliament. Yeah, so it's a bit of both, really. I mean, in the main, what we're hoping is that the, the report is used by judges in the way that you've said, um, so that we get some case that is then decided in a way which provides clarity on this. Now, the advantages of that are the ones that I alluded to earlier, which are that, that you know, that form of lawmaking is agile and it's responsive. Um, but of course, you then depend on the right case coming to court and the right facts being litigated. Um, so, you, you, you know, you are slightly subject there to the, to the, to the vagaries of litigation, although given how many digital assets are currently being um, used, I think it's only a matter of time. So what we've said in the report is, and actually this came out of a discussion that we had with judges, we had a judicial roundtable and we put um, to them our proposed approach. Um, and actually, they said they were generally quite happy with that given that we'd give them this analysis that they could then use. But they said they'd also feel quite comfortable if we had a very short sort of first principles um, legislative provision that sort of simply did the unlocking bit. So said digital assets. I mean, I'm not drafting here. This is not the statutory language. <laughs> in, 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 in substance, what we want this short piece of legislation to say is these digital assets shouldn't be denied a proprietary characterization simply by virtue of the fact that they're electronic or they're digital or they're yeah, virtual, yeah. like, you know, whatever word yeah, parliamentary yeah. council fashions, uh, fastens on. So, so yeah, that's what we're hoping, really, that it's a combination of that sort of unlocking statutory basis, which the common law can then build on um, and, and, you know, work its magic that it's done for, for centuries in terms of all other sorts of um, new things that that sort of occurred to people um, after the the sort of the law was first formulated. First formulated. Oh, that's really well, brilliant. Um, James, everything is clear as mud for you on the other side of the pond, or you have <laughs> it? got it, got yeah. it, excellent. <laughs> you know what? I was thinking about the whole time. The uh, we interviewed somebody, but but it was law based about I think Bitcoin being stolen. And the mm -hmm. judge in the UK brought up a valid point about where the location of the owner of the wallet played the geographical role. Because I guess they were taking into account the fact that Bitcoin is not a physical, tangible item, right? It's everywhere at all times. So you were reminding me of that, where they were taught that third item that you were talking about third way yeah. the third yeah. right so the location of deciding where a non-tangible but physical it's such a weird dimension right it is and it's actually a fantastically important and difficult question to the extent that actually um that is a whole new project that we're currently engaged on at the Law Commission, which is about, I mean, it's called conflict of laws. So um, obviously, if you have these 
interjurisdictional transactions. You've got a buyer in, say, Italy. You've got uh, the seller in, I don't know, Hong Kong. It could be anywhere. And then the thing itself. So if that was a tangible thing like a car, there are questions about, well, what law governs that transaction? You know, is it where the car is or is it where the buyer is or is it where the seller is? Now, those those questions are difficult enough anyway. But uh, James, as you say, when what we're talking about is a digital asset, where on earth is the digital asset? if indeed it is anywhere, you know, it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. Um, so all the all the old fashioned ways that the law has um, used to try and identify what law should apply can pretty much go out the window now, right? Because we've got all these, these assets which, which don't have that physical location or certainly arguably don't have that physical location. So that in itself is a whole different can of worms. Um, and as I said, that's forming the basis of a, of a separate project that we're doing. So. I don't know, maybe in 12 months, 18 months, I'll come back and talk to you about the answers when I've got them. You've got to go and do some, re- you've got to do a bit of homework, Sarah. Oh, I've got to do a lot of homework. Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> she's got oh, job man. security. Absolutely. <laughs> There's always someone comes up with an awkward question like you or me, James. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know well, I enjoy yeah. it. It's very interesting. Sarah, you've, you've made potentially a very complicated subject. I, I think you've made it really, really very, very clear, given some great clarity and explanations and examples. So, so thank you for that, because it, this is really um, going to have a big, big impact, um, mainly, I, I believe, from an institutional perspective, because institutions, it's all around reputation and risk and, and looking after their clients' assets, and they, they desperately need some legal and in some cases, some some regulatory clarity, and it's great that um, you know the UK finally is showing um, you know a, a bit of guidance there. So I think that's something not only just for here for um, England and Wales. Sorry, I shouldn't keep saying UK; it's England and Wales. But I think other jurisdictions will hopefully um, fall on you know the the research and the work you've done and um, give give the clarity that we so desperately need. I do hope so. Brilliant. All right, James. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah, and. Yeah, we'd love to get you back when you've got some, you know, when you've done your homework. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, I'll let you know if and when we get there. And um, I can, yeah, I could come and elaborate on that. Fantastic. Thank you very much again. And thank you for listening to the Digital Light Show here on Cyber.fm.